Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Um, hey, before we begin, I uh, uh, want to I make an announcement, a actually an apology to our Thursday night guys and Thursday morning guys. This Wednesday, um, I'm going to be uh, flying out with my wife, and we're going to Boston to attend my son's graduation from Harvard. So uh, we're recording this like we always do. Yeah, it's great because he's the kid who flunked out of OU um, and then went into the Marines and then God worked in his life and now he's graduating from Harvard. So it's a miracle. Um, but we're recording this and so Thursday morning and Thursday night, those guys are going to be watching the video and I'm, I particularly want to apologize to the Thursday night guys because two Thursdays ago I had to miss because I went to my daughter's graduation. And so when you have six kids, this is what happens. You go to a lot of graduations, and I'm happy to do so. So, yes, I love my son more than I love the Thursday guys. But um, we're going to get it recorded. They'll be able to watch it. But uh, this is going to be a great lesson. It's uh, probably... Uh, not a character you would think to study, but it's one that I, I feel like is important for us to look at because of what we know about him, what we're told about him in the scriptures. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take a look at the, the life of Lot. So let me pray. Well, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, your scriptures that are, that are filled with glimpses of all kinds of people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, we, we, we've gotten a chance to look at David. Uh, we're going to get to look at uh, Abraham in two weeks. And this week, we're going to look at a character that I've, I've never had much respect for. And I've, I've never really associated myself with him, but yet you've placed him in the word. You've uh, put him there for us to look at. And there's some things about him that are really clear, and we can look at him and go, don't be like this guy. And then there's at least... One thing that surprises me, and yet you've placed in your word so that we might learn from his life. And I pray that would happen this morning as we study this passage together, that we would understand more of what it means to be a godly man through the life of a man who didn't appear to be very godly at all. And so, Lord, uh, speak to us, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at Lot. Uh, Lot is an interesting character. He shows up in the book of Genesis, and, and we're going to dig into those early uh, parts of his life. Where did he come from? Who was he? But we're going to particularly look at um, an area of his life that he's not necessarily known for. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a passage that you may find surprising. You may have never seen this passage before, may, may have never noticed it before. And so, first and foremost, we're going to find out this guy, Lot, was a friend of the world. Uh, and, not in a, and not in a positive way. Uh, he was positively a friend of the world, but it, it had a negative impact on his life and the life of all those around him. James 4.4 says this, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. This scripture is lived out in spades in the life of Lot. Uh, he, he almost uh, personifies what it means to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. And, and so in my life, as, as I've looked at him, um, I've always seen him as kind of a mistake, a living, walking, breathing mistake. Uh, and I've always wondered why he's even there, other than to learn from his, the negative aspects of his life. Really what we're going to see is that he's the example of a fallen saint. And you may say, well, how is he a saint? Well, the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, paint a picture of a man who at one time walked with God, but then walked away from God. And here's why that's important for you and I, is you and I can do that virtually any day of our life. We can be walking with God, we can get up and come to this Bible study, and we can learn some things and feel convicted by God, encouraged by the Word of God, and then walk away and take a wrong turn. We don't fall away from our faith, but we definitely take a departure from our relationship with God. And I think that's why he's there. 
for many years in my life, I thought I had a lot figured out. I, I'd gone, gone to Sunday school enough and heard enough stories about Abraham and Lot, and they are relatives. Abraham is the uncle of Lot, and we'll look, talk about more about that in just a second. But I thought I understood him. I thought I knew who he was because I saw him as a freeloader. Why? Because he was the, the nephew of Lot who accompanied Lot or accompanied Abraham when he left Ur of the Chaldees. You remember God called Abraham out of Ur, that pagan area to the east of Israel, long before Israel existed, and he came along with him. So he's a freeloader in a way. He was a mistake. It's almost like God made a mistake. But really, God didn't make a mistake. Abraham made a mistake by inviting this young man to come along with him because God said, leave your relatives, leave them behind, and yet Abraham brings them along. He was an opportunist. You're going to see in his life that he was always taking advantage of, of situations to make life better for himself. Lot was all about Lot. He was a, kind of a self-absorbed guy who always thought about him, and he ended up being a, a huge liability to Abraham. Uh, we're not going to have time to look at the story, but there's a point in his life where he... Um, gets in trouble, and Abraham has to go literally to battle to win his freedom. So he was a liability. And then he's just basically, I've always viewed him as just a godless pagan. You got to remember when God called Abram out of Ur, Abram was a godless pagan. He wasn't a Hebrew. There were no Hebrews. The Hebrew nation came from him, but he was a pagan, idol-worshiping Mesopotamian. And God called him, and then he became a God follower, a Yahweh follower. But there, there's no indication in the early parts of Genesis that Lot ever expressed faith in the same God. And so I always viewed him as just a pagan who happened to be related to Abraham and tagged along when Abraham left Ur, went to Haran, and eventually went down into the promised land. So I see him, and the scriptures seem to portray him, at least in the book of Genesis, as a foil, the opposite of the, the counter to Abraham. And it shows up regularly in the story of their lives. So you see these things about them. Abraham is obviously called by God. We see that in chapter 12 of Genesis. He calls him out of Ur, and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. There's no call for Lot. God didn't call Abraham. He just came. Now, he wasn't invited by God, but he was invited by Abraham. So he's uninvited. One's a friend of God, according to the scriptures, and we're going to look at that next week. The other one, according to Genesis, is a friend of the world. He, he fell in love with the world in, in a major way. Abraham was selfless, always kind of giving himself away, was willing to take care of the son of his deceased brother, Lot had him come along. He, he fed him. He cared for him. He was even at one point, I think, ready to make him his heir, adopt him. But you see in Lot, he's totally self-centered, always thinking about Lot. One guy's gracious, the other one's greedy. A Abraham was constantly, again, giving himself away to the benefit of those around him, almost to a fault, whereas Lot was always interested in, what am I going to get out of this? How can I benefit from this relationship? Abraham was faithful. Lot was pragmatic. It was always based on what's best for me at this given moment. What should I do to line my pocket, make me look better, feel better? How can I become more productive, wealthy? What's in it for me? Abraham was a man of faith. And he was always looking to the future. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that he lived in the land of promise, never owning any land in the land of promise because his eyes were set on the future for that city which would, would be built without human hands. Whereas Lot lived for the moment. Lot lived for the here and now. Total, totally opposite characters, right? And then you run into 2 Peter 2. This passage, the first time I ever saw it, I don't remember my dad, who was my pastor, ever preaching a message on 2 Peter 2, verses 7 through 8. 
I literally, I don't know when I first noticed this passage, but when I did first notice this passage, it was like a, somebody yanked on the emergency brake going 100 miles an hour. And my, I, what, this doesn't make sense. One of the guys joked and said, you know, did, did, Peter, know, or, yeah, did Peter know a different lot than we know? Where did he get his information? And I said, well, I, I hope he got it from God. I hope he didn't just make this up, and I don't think he did because the scriptures are inspired by God. But here's what he writes. God also rescued Lot out of Sodom, and we're going to see that as we look at his life. But look at what it says. Because he was a righteous man. This is where the emergency brake gets pulled, and you're like screeching to a halt, and you go, wait a minute. Are we talking about the same guy? Well, he goes on. It says... who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him, where? In Sodom. Yes, Lot was a righteous man, second time he said it, who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Even now I read that and I go, man, this is so different than what I know about and believe about this guy named Lot, that how can he be a righteous man? Now, we're talking about what does it mean to be a godly man, how to be a man after God's own heart, how to, be, to picture godliness in your life. And we see that this guy, according to Peter, and because we believe the Scriptures to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, according to God, he was a righteous man. Why? How can you support that based on what we know from the book of Genesis? Well, in one way, he's innocent by association. He's Innocent in the sense that he is closely related to Abraham, literally a blood relative of Abraham. And his association with Abraham benefited him because Abraham was called. Abraham was promised all the blessings. He vicariously got to enjoy. Every time Abraham got blessed, he got blessed. And so in a sense, he's righteous. He's seen as godly because of his association with that man. Genesis 12, 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So Lot invited him to go. Even though God said, leave your relatives behind, I want you to go to the land that I've promised you, he brings Lot with him. And so in a way, he's invited by Lot, and he's going to, going to benefit from that relationship with his uncle. And so in a way, that's kind of rubbed off on him. He's he's essentially the adopted son of Abraham. That was not unknown in that culture because when Abraham's brother died, he took his son to live with him. And again, I believe there was a point in time long before Isaac was born where Abraham decided, man, if my wife who's barren can't have a kid, we'll just make Lot the heir. Well, that wasn't God's plan. But they had this close relationship. They, they spent a lot of time together. I think Lot looked at him as his father, looked at Abraham in that way. And so there's a benefit going on between them, between this uncle who's treating Lot like his own son. And that's why he traveled all the way from Ur up to Haran and then all the way down into Canaan. He ended up going with Abraham when he went to Egypt. You remember when Abraham finally got to the land of promise, there's a famine in the land, and so he escapes, he runs to Egypt, and Lot went with him. Everywhere Abraham went, Lot went. But when they come back from Egypt, they kind of started parting ways. And part of the reason they parted ways is because both of them were blessed in Egypt. They came back from Egypt very wealthy. Uh, You remember that because of uh, Abraham's decision to say that his wife was actually his sister and Pharaoh took her into his harem and then God had to intervene and save her. And then he said, get out of town. Pharaoh kicked Abraham out of town, but he blessed him richly. Well, guess who else got blessed? So did Lot. It says, when Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, 
Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. He leaves wealthy, and so does his nephew. See, in a way, this guy is benefiting from his relationship with his uncle Abraham. And you can see that he developed a close affinity for Abraham because, hey, the more I hang out with this guy, the better things get for me. It doesn't say that he, he saw value in the righteousness of Abraham, in the godliness of Abraham. I do think that eventually, and I think the scriptures are going to re- reveal, that he eventually became a Yahweh worshiper just like Abraham. Otherwise, Peter couldn't say those, those things we just read about him, that he was a righteous man. So somewhere along the way between Ur to Haran, down to, to Canaan, to Egypt, and back again, he became a Yahweh follower, and he was being blessed. Look what it says in chapter 13 of Genesis. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So what's happened? Both men have prospered. Both men have been blessed by God. Both have benefited from a relationship with God. And now it's caused strife between the uncle and his ward. And so there's going to be a parting of the ways. They're going to head separate directions. And so Abraham, in his graciousness, gives his nephew first dibs. He basically says, you choose what land you want. We can't live together. So you choose what land you want, and it's yours. And Lot chooses. And he chooses the best. That's why he, I believe him to be an opportunist. He's always looking out for himself. He doesn't go, no, no, uncle, that, that's not fair. You take the best and I'll take what's left over. He goes, heck yeah, if you're going to give me the best, I'm going to choose the best. And he does. He chooses extremely well. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. He chooses the most fertile, richest land you can find. And then Lot journeyed east. They thus separated from each other and he settled, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. So you see this picture of them taking different paths. He takes the best land, and he starts heading east, and that's a premonition. It's a a foreshadowing of things to come, because it goes on and says, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, if you know anything about Sodom, Sodom is not a good place. Sodom is the sister city to Gomorrah. These two Twin cities were close to each other, and they were known for their wickedness. They were known for immorality, unrighteousness. They were extremely successful, extremely prosperous, and extremely immoral. And so where does he move? He goes from the valley east, and it says that he settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. It's like he's moving closer and closer to what? Sin. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is kind of the the aha moment of he's moving away from righteousness, moving away from literally Abraham, and he's moving towards the men of Sodom, which is going to become very clear what the scriptures mean when they say that. What's his motivation? I think it's pure greed. He sees the valley. He realizes it's rich, it's fertile, and he moves there. But then he sees something else, and he moves east. He sees the cities, and he sees that the people in the cities seem to have a lot of stuff. It's not just sheep. They've got wealth. They've got influence. They've got power, prominence. And so he moves closer and closer, and then he chooses a particular city, Sodom, because Sodom and its twin sister city of Gomorrah are extremely successful extremely wealthy, and so he moves closer and closer. But that decision is going to have major consequences in his life, not just for his life, but for his wife, his daughters, and generations to come. See, his decisions, like my decisions and your decisions, always have consequences. They can have good consequences. They can have bad consequences. And so I believe this man who had become a Yahweh worshiper, 
who believed in the same God as Abraham, his uncle, was slowly moving away from that God as he moved away from Abraham, the influence of Abraham. You know, one of the reasons I, I love the fact that we have a men's Bible study and you can come and hang out with other men who believe what you believe and worship the same God and have a relationship with Jesus Christ just like you do is that we benefit from these relationships. You're not meant to be a lone ranger. You're not meant to grow as a Christian on your own. And so him moving away from Abraham had a dramatic impact on his life. And he ends up moving his entire family to Sodom. Not just near Sodom, but he eventually moves into Sodom. And what he doesn't know is that God has plans for Sodom and they're not good. God's going to do something with Sodom because Sodom was like the poster child for immorality in that day and age. And so here's this man who had been taken away from Ur by his uncle, taken to Canaan, became a Yahweh follower, was blessed by Yahweh abundantly, has now moved into a place that God's going to do something to. We know from chapter 18 that God visits Abraham. He sends angels to go visit him. And he says, I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. Now, this is not saying God is not all-knowing, right? God knows everything. This is for Abraham's benefit. He's trying to let Abraham know something about the land in which he's living. It is full of wickedness. Nothing has really changed since Noah and the flood. Wickedness has still filled the earth. Sinful people fill the earth. And so he's telling Abraham, I'm going to go check this out to see if it's as bad as it appears to be. He knows it is, and he's already got a plan for what he's going to do. But see, what Abraham has to understand is that he already knows his nephews living there. He knows that Lot has made a bad decision, has moved, has moved his whole family into Sodom. And so God is letting him know what he's about to do to the inhabitants of that wicked city. You have to understand that as, as almost a, an adoptive father, Abraham was really concerned about Lot. Um, what's Lot going to do? Is, is Lot going to remain there? Is Lot living for Yahweh? Is Lot doing anything righteous with his life, or has he completely given in to the world? He's concerned about his nephew, like a father would be concerned for his son. I'm concerned for all of my adult kids. I want them to make wise decisions. I, I want them to be followers of God. I want them to get involved in a local church. I want them to marry godly spouses and I care about that. Abraham cared about that. And so when God says that he's got plans for this city and that he might destroy this city, Abraham kicks into gear and he begins to barter with God and he begins to ask him, well, wait a minute, what if, what if there's some righteous people there? It's almost like he thinks God doesn't know Lot's there. Well, God knows everything, right? He knows Lot's there. He knows exactly what Lot's doing. But Abraham intervenes and he says, Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. He appeals to God's justice. He almost questions it. Wait a minute, God. If, well, what if there's 50 righteous people in that wicked city? Would you not want to spare them? Wouldn't you do the right thing, the just thing, and spare those 50 people? And God basically says, yeah, if I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare it. Well, then Abraham gets a little panicky and he goes, well, okay, wait, wait, what if there's 40? Okay, 40. What if there's 30? Okay, 30. What if there's 20? And he gets it all the way down to 10. And then he finally just goes, okay, I'm done bartering. I better hedge my bets here. And God goes, okay, if I find 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. I think... Abraham wanted to argue further because he's probably thinking, what if there's just one? Because he knows, see, he even thinks Lot is righteous. And so he's wanting to know, is God going to destroy Lot along with all the unrighteous people? 
It's an amazing story, right? Because again, I, I tend to think of Lot as being completely unrighteous, but even Abraham, the uncle who knew Lot well, believed him to be a righteous man. And he's asking God, will you spare him? He knows Lot is living in the midst of rampant immorality. I, I think he's wondering, how, how, how could you do this? How could you make a decision like this? He had never done that. He had never even been tempted to do that. He never lived in a city. He never owned a home. He always lived in tents. And yet here's his nephew living in the midst of rampant immorality. So God agrees that he'll spare the city if he finds 10 righteous people, but there's only one. One guy in the city, not his wife, not his daughters, not his sons-in-law. There's only one righteous man. It's almost like when we studied Noah, that when Noah comes along, there's only one righteous man left in the world, and that's the guy God puts on the ark. And he begins again. So here you have Lot, one guy. So what happens? These angels of God go into the city, and they walk into the city, and they are invited by Lot, who's sitting at the gate of the city, which means he's highly involved in the affairs of the city. He's moved in. He's gotten ingratiated to the people of the city. He's some kind of ruler in the city, or he wouldn't be in that position. He sees these men, these angels, and he invites them into his home to protect them because he knows what's going to happen if he leaves them out in the square. So he invites them into his home, and they let him know that God's going to destroy the city. And it says, at dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. They said, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. They literally have to tell him, get out of Dodge. You got to get out of here because God's going to destroy this city and Gomorrah. And look at what it says, Lot still hesitated. Those, those three little words are jam-packed with significance. Why is he hesitating? He didn't want to leave. Even though he's been told what's going to happen, and he knows exactly why it's going to happen, because he knows the immorality of his city, and it got displayed the night before when the men of the city all came to the door of his house, banged on the door and said, give us those men so that we can have sex with them. And he offers up his two daughters as substitutes. He says, take, take, take my two daughters, do with them what you will, but I have to protect these men. Even that I struggle with and go, what, have you lost your mind? You're going to sacrifice your daughters on behalf of these men? Well, in that culture, that was what you were expected to do. If, if you had two people in your home or one person in your home, once they entered your home, you were responsible for their well-being. So we may struggle with his decision here, but he is trying to protect these men from his fellow citizens. So the angels have to seize him by the hand, and they, they grab the hands of his wife, his two daughters, and they forcibly rush them out of the city in order to save their lives. For the Lord was merciful. That's huge. He didn't deserve it. He hadn't earned it, done nothing really that was worthy of being saved, but God mercifully, graciously saves the life of Lot. Why? Because he was a righteous man. Because God viewed him as a righteous man. Not because of the things he did. And this is going to be real important for us to understand. It seems the passage is saying that he's being saved because he's righteous based on his behavior. But just look at the passage. He's done nothing righteous in the whole passage. From the moment he decided to move into Sodom to the moment these men came into his home, he's really done nothing worthy of being saved. 2 Peter 2.9 says, the Lord saves the godly from trials. He's in a trial, right? He's in that city. The men of the city now want to kill him because he wouldn't give over the two guests. And God had to save him even from that attack by blinding the men of the city. But see, it's God who's saving. He's not saving himself. He's not being saved because he's righteous in the sense of doing righteous things. He's done nothing but make ungodly decisions from the day he left Abraham's side. And yet he gets saved by God. It says in that Second Peter passage that he's distressed by the corruption around him. 
and I find this fascinating too, it at least indicates that he's still got a conscience, right? He, he's still bothered by the stuff that he sees going on. Can you imagine every day he gets up and he goes to the, the city gate where he was probably some form of a judge and he had to walk by all the immorality going on. It's everywhere. You know, I grew up in New York, and, and uh, fortunately, I grew up on Long Island, and I hated going into the city because at that time, in the 70s, it, it was not a good place to go, and it's kind of gone back that way. And I remember walking the streets of New York City, and there was just immorality everywhere you turned your head. It was just, it was dirty. It was nasty. It, it was just not a fun place to be. It smelled. The people were rude, and they're still rude. Um, but it just was not a great place to be. This is what I feel like it was like for this guy to walk around in the city of Sodom. He was bothered by what he saw. It goes on, tells us that he was tormented by all the sin. You and I get tormented by the sin around us, right? Every time I, I read the news or I flip on a newscast, I'm tormented by all the iniquity and the sin and the immorality around me. And so was he. He was sensitive to the sinfulness of the culture. But what did he do about it? Nothing. He did nothing. He just stayed there. He knew it was wicked. He knew it was immoral, and he'd never moved. See, his righteousness is not a righteousness of action. He didn't do righteous things. He didn't make righteous decisions. He was positionally righteous. What does that mean? God viewed him as righteous because he was one of his own. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. And even though he didn't worship Yahweh well, God still was faithful to him, just like God is faithful to me when I don't serve him well. It's not based on good deeds. It's not based on good decisions. It's based totally on God's declaration. You are mine. You are a righteous man. You belong to me you represent me on this earth. And God is faithful to his own. And we see that in the life of this man, Lot. Again, not righteous because of anything he's done, but righteous because God has characterized him as so. Biblically, righteousness is the character or state of being right or just in the sight of God. One of the things we know as believers, I hope we know this as believers, that when God looks at you and I, he sees us as righteous because of what? That you had a prayer time, that you came to Bible study, that you tithe, that you are nice to your wife and kids? No, through the righteousness of Christ. We have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. So when he looks at me, he sees me through that lens. And in the same way, when he looks at this man, he sees him as righteous because he has set him apart as his own. You belong to me. He's part of the household of Abraham. He's part of the chosen people that will eventually come from Abraham. And it's all based on his belief in God. See, as much as he's still struggling, he, he still believes in God. He's bothered by the sin. He knows it's wrong. He knows what's going on in Sodom is an affront to a holy God, but he doesn't do anything to change it. So he gets the grace of God. If I were God, I would have smoked him. I, I would have left him in the city. I'd have let the men in the city do whatever they want to him. You deserve it. But see, God doesn't operate that way, and I'm so glad he doesn't. God showed him grace because from God's perspective, you belong to me. You are mine. And so he saves him. Genesis 19 is, is, is pretty significant because it paints a picture of a man who has become surrounded by sin willingly. And that's key. We're surrounded by sin. I didn't necessarily choose to be surrounded by sin, but it is everywhere and there's not a whole heck of a lot I can do about it. And so we're going to look at just some things that he did that led him to this point in his life. Willingly, knowingly, he did it. So he moves from the green grass of the plains to where? Gross immorality. He made the decision to go from those fertile plains where he could graze all of his flocks to move into Sodom. And it was a decision he made. It's recorded for us in chapter 13. Lot went from the well-watered plains to a morally depraved city. He willfully made that decision. 
He chose to do that. Just like you can choose to do ungodly, unrighteous things every day of your lives, so can I. He made that decision, and it began a love affair with the world. And that love affair with the world is always subtle at the beginning. It's never egregious. It's never blatant. You don't decide to do something really, really, really bad. You start with a decision that seems innocuous, doesn't, doesn't look like much. You know, men that I've talked to who, who have struggled with addiction to pornography didn't start looking at triple X rated sites. It started with a glance here, a glance there, dabbling in this, dabbling in that, and it builds and it grows, and pretty soon the next thing you know, you're addicted. That's how it always begins. A love affair with the world is always subtle at the beginning. Then he's going to go from waiting on God to sitting at the gate. When he was walking with uh, Abraham, when he was fellowshipping with other believers in Yahweh, he had learned to wait on Yahweh, and he was blessed by Yahweh. But now because he's sitting at the gate and he's in a place of authority, respect, responsibility, he's no longer waiting on God. He's relying on what? The world. What they can bring to him. This ward of Abraham and really an heir of Abraham to a certain degree because he's going to be benefiting from all the blessings that come to Abraham. He's lost his hope in the promises of God. Why in the world would you move to Sodom if you thought God is going to continue to bless me richly in the plains? Had God not done enough? Had God not been gracious enough, generous enough? Well, just by his actions, he's revealing that I want more. This isn't good enough. He's impatient. I want more blessings. I want more prosperity. I want more riches. I want all my blessings now. See, the, the, the enemy knows, guys, that ultimately what he's trying to give you is what God has promised, but in a different form. It's the same thing Satan offered to Eve, right? Surely God has not said, you know, he just doesn't want you to have this fruit because if you eat of this fruit, you'll be just like him. The enemy's always offering us the things that God has promised, but in a totally different form. So he turns to the world. I believe that's the whole reason he's in Sodom. He's wanting something that he feels like God has not given. And he goes from dependence upon God to independence from God. All because of this decision. You have to keep in mind, everything that he owned up until this point had come from who? God. The gracious gifts of God. But now what's he want? Again, he's sitting at the gate and he has become a person of power, prestige, prominent position. People look up to him and he's independent from God. I don't need God anymore. I can get what I want right here, right now, living in this context. But it's not the context God ever had for him. God didn't want Abraham living in Sodom. He didn't want Lot living in Sodom. But Lot had made the decision to be independent from God and it never brings what it seems to promise. You move away from God, and it will never bring you joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. You may get rich, you may get popular, you may have stuff, but you will not have peace. And that's what happened to him. And then he moves from righteous loved ones to lovers of unrighteousness. Imagine this. One day you're living with your tent closely approximate to Abraham, you're hanging out with Abraham, and Abraham's a godly man, and Abraham is worshiping Yahweh on a regular basis, and you go from that to living in Sodom. And there's no righteous people in the city, including his own wife and daughters. I can't imagine living in an environment where there's no believers anywhere. It's hard enough with all the believers that we know that we hang out regularly. But see, this guy is living in an environment where he's completely surrounded by unrighteous people all the time, 24-7. And he abandons that godly influence. You know, I know of guys who have used to come to Bible study and were very engaged in Christ Chapel and ever since the pandemic have never come back. And they're not going to church anywhere. That's a recipe for disaster. It will not end well. It will, it will not go well if you decide to pull away from the godly influence of other believers. Get plugged in somewhere, you know, but this guy was plugged into all the wrong things and he, he had chosen to literally live with ungodly people. 
I can't determine who my neighbors are. I can't determine, you know, the, the spiritual health of the entire city in which I live, but I can make certain decisions who I associate with. This guy decided to associate with the wicked and it had an influence. He wasn't necessarily doing wickedness, right? He wasn't practicing homosexuality like all his neighbors. He wasn't rampantly wicked like they were, but he had associated with them and he failed to condemn it. He, he wouldn't speak out against it. He never said a word about it. It says he was bothered in his heart. His conscience was bothered, but he didn't do anything about it. Notice that he never moved. You know, if you were living in a neighborhood that was wicked or evil or dangerous to your family, you would probably sell your home at a loss in order to protect them. This guy just stays there. He never moves. And it leads from a commitment to Yahweh to compromise. This is one of the most dangerous things you and I can be tempted to do is to go from conviction to compromise, compromising our beliefs, our morals, our ethics, our integrity, just to get a little something from the world. It dawned on me that this guy was circumcised just like Abraham. He had the sign of the covenant, but he wasn't living like he believed in the covenant. He was not doing what God called covenant-keeping people to do. He was not living according to the word of God and the law of God. He was basically living like what? The world. No, he was not living in the same way as the world. He was not committing the same evil as the world, but he was closely associated with those people and not speaking up against it. He was there for 20 years. 20 years living in the midst of what was a really wicked city. How wicked? Wicked enough that God basically burned it to the ground. That's pretty wicked. God has not destroyed the world in which we live. God has not destroyed this nation. And I think this nation is pretty wicked. Well, how wicked was this city? Wicked enough for God to literally burn it to the ground. And this guy had chosen to live there. And it, he went from conviction to what? Complacency. Man, I can get there so easily. I can go from, man, this is wrong, this is evil, this is against the will of God, God hates this, but I can become so complacent about the sin around me. How do we see that in his life? There's no conviction over the evil, the sin of his community. It bothered him, right? It, it, he hated it, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't speak up. Why? Because if he spoke up, what would happen? The very thing that happened when he tried to save those two angels and the people, the men of the city said, who do you think you are? You think you're, more, you're better than we are, that you could judge us? See, that's what he's always feared. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be ostracized. And so he became complacent. He wouldn't speak up. And it's interesting that at no point does he ever make a plea that God spare his fellow citizens. Abraham pleaded for the Sodomites, right? He said, will you spare them if there's 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 10 righteous? This guy makes no plea. He never intercedes on behalf of his community that they might be spared. And an entire city is gonna be destroyed. He knows it and he never says, but wait a minute, God, would you spare them on my, my behalf? Would you redeem them, atone them? On my behalf, he never does anything. No concern for the people of Sodom. He, all he's concerned about is him. And it jumps off the pages of scripture. See, we can become so comfortable with sin that we become complacent about it rather than convicted by it. I was watching a show the other night and it, it wasn't egregious. It wasn't uh, heavily immoral, but everything about it seemed to um, applaud wickedness. And I caught myself wondering, why doesn't that bother me? How can I sit here and watch this and not be bothered by the fact that this show is celebrating wickedness over righteousness? Because I can get complacent. In my desire to relax and just kind of chill out and wind down from a busy day, I can catch myself becoming complacent about wickedness. That's what Lot had done. He had become comfortable with sin. Chuck Colson says, when compared with previous generations of believers, we seem 
among the most thoroughly at peace with our culture, the least adept at transforming society, and the most desperate for a meaningful faith. In other words, we want to have a meaningful faith. We want to be righteous men. We want to be godly men. That's why you're here. But sometimes we can become so complacent and at peace with the culture around us, and we fail to speak up. We, We fail to stand up and say the right things. And you see it in his life because he's reluctant to leave. He doesn't want to leave Sodom. He doesn't want to bail on everything that he got out of Sodom. He literally has to be dragged out of the city, seemingly kicking and screaming, because he wants to stay there. He even says, okay, if I leave, can I settle in another city? What does that tell you about him? I like cities. I like what cities bring. I like the wealth, the prosperity, the prominence, the position that I can gain in a city. And his wife reveals that she is heavily attached to Sodom because they told him, don't look back. Get out and don't look back. And she looks back and she's turned to a pillar of salt. Her heart was still there. She still wanted to live there. And so you see this man making decisions, compromises that lead to consequences. A love affair with the world always produces worldliness. You just can't stop it. It will show up in your life. If I fall in love with the world, I will become like the world. That's why we're told don't love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievement and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. See, this guy was going to suffer consequences. His family was going to suffer consequences. We know from the rest of the story of Genesis that his two daughters, once they get out of town and they're, they're, they're living in the wilderness for a period of time, they become panicky because they realize all the men are dead. Their fiancés were killed. And they decide, well, we better do something. And so their plan is we're going to get dad drunk, have sex with him so that we can have kids. Now, now would you say that they may have been negatively impacted by living in Sodom? I I don't know what they were watching on cable TV, but they, they got their ideas from somewhere, right? Where do they get this idea? From the community in which they live. So they get him drunk, they have sex with him, and here's the result. This is amazing. And we sometimes overlook it. From those two situations, sex with their own father come the Moabites and the Ammonites. And from those two groups will come this, idolatry and immorality. For generations, Baal Peor is a Moabite deity that the Israelites worshiped when they had illicit sexual relations with the Moabite women, Numbers 25, verse 3. Moloch, an Ammonite deity to which the Israelites sacrificed their own children. This came out of a really bad decision that he made to move into Sodom. Long-term consequences for his decision. And he moves from salvation to seduction. This guy had been saved by God, chosen by God. He had been blessed by God, and he had given into the seduction of the world. All those blessings he had enjoyed were going to evaporate. I think when he left Sodom, he left everything behind, all his wealth, all his flocks, Everything that God had given him were left in Sodom and destroyed. He had shared the belief of Abraham and Yahweh, but all along there was something missing. What was it? No fear of God. He feared men. Remember those three things, fear of God, an understanding of God's love, and a devotion to God? They were missing. He didn't fear God enough to separate himself from their influence. He stayed right there in the midst of it. He didn't fully understand God's love for him. He didn't understand that God had blessed him over and over again. I can trust God. God can give me all I need. He went to the world for love. What will the world give me? How will the world bless me? And he enjoyed all that adulation and praise he got from sitting at the gate, the power, the prominence, the position, the possessions. And so therefore he lacked intimacy with God. I think those 20 years he lived in Sodom, he moved further and further away from his relationship with God. He allowed the world to become his greatest distraction. I like what the world gives me. The world is not necessarily evil or wrong. It's our love affair with the world and the things that it offers. He's more passionate about his own needs than he was about God. And he preferred a seat at the gate 
than sitting in the presence of God. See, he would have been much better off in his tent, right next to Abraham, in Canaan, but in God's presence than he was sitting at the gate in Sodom. Philippians 3 tells us this, I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. Uh, Some of the translations say their God is their belly. They're driven by sensuality. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But he goes on and says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as Savior. This guy's life is sad. There's no way to escape it, no way to get around it. Everything about him is is negative, except for the fact that God saved him. God brought him out of that. We're not really told what happens to him after that point. We're not given a story of, you know, rags to riches. We're not told that he immediately began walking with the Lord. No, what happens is he has sex with his daughters. They, They get pregnant. Things go downhill, I believe, for him from that point forward. But he was saved by God in spite of himself. So according to James 4, 4, and you'll need to go look at it, in what ways have you seen friendship with the world make you an enemy of God? It can happen like that. When you fall in love with the world and you let what you can get from the world distract you from your relationship with God, how does that make you his enemy? And yet he still loves you. Secondly, how did Lot's love affair with the world begin? What does the world offer that can draw our hearts away from God and how do we resist it? It's every day that we're tempted by those things. How do we stand opposed to that? How do we say no to it? And I'm not telling you the stuff is all wrong and that you shouldn't own this and you shouldn't do this. I'm just saying when they become substitutes for God and they distract you from God, they become dangerous. Finally, how have compromise, conformity, and complacency shown up in your life? Father, we we thank you that you've placed this guy in the Bible because in so many ways we can be just like him. He is a picture of the people of God walking away from God, falling in love with the gods of this world, money, prominence, position, power, prestige, possessions. And when we do that, we take our eyes off of you. Father, would you show us how to get reoriented, that we would rather be in your presence than have a seat at the gate, that we would rather have fellowship with other believers than fellowship with this world, Lord, we know we can't escape this world. We can't get away from all the evil, but we can certainly not become complacent about it and compromise with it. So would you guide our conversations around the tables and drive us closer and closer to you that, Lord, we need you in order to live the godly life you called us to. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.